This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. And yes, uh, as both members of the Catholic Medical Association, we uh, agree to uphold the Catholic faith and the science of practice in medicine, and that's what we hope to do today on our show. Today's guest for the interview is going to be Dr. Alan Moy, the founder of the John Paul II Medical Research Institute located in Iowa City in Coralville, Iowa. He's also a pulmonary medicine physician who will uh, educate us about stem cells, what they are, how they're used or can be misused, and the promise they hold for treating and curing diseases. But first, we're going to look at some recent medical news with Andrew. All right, Tom, there's a lot going on out there, but one thing really stuck out to me recently, and it's it's been in a great deal of articles, but it's related to the AMA, the American Medical Association's official position on physician-assisted suicide, which, as you know, is a passion of mine. Yes, it is, as it should be. You know, it's it's one of those things that, thank goodness, here in Indiana, where we record from, we, we don't think about a lot on a daily basis because it's illegal here. But as many of our listeners know, there's now seven areas in America where it's legal, um, the most recent being Hawaii, which recently legalized it, and that'll take effect on January 1, 2019. So it's something that's coming to our country, and it's been present other places, the practice of physicians uh, helping patients to die. And so... The American Medical Association is probably the premier organization. They, they would definitely fashion themselves as the premier organization for doctors throughout the country, and I think they represent about 27,000 doctors throughout the country. Now, that's a fraction of the total number of doctors, but they're the people who get called to all the official meetings at the White House and with congressmen, and they really help direct a lot of medical policy. The AMA has forever been against assisted suicide, but two years ago, there were a group of people who suggested that the AMA reconsider that. They said potentially the American Medical Association should not have a position. They should be neutral, whether it's good or bad to kill your patients. Um, that would seem counterintuitive to a lot of us and probably a lot of our listeners. Uh, but at the same time, the AMA is in a position where many of its members in places like Oregon, California, Washington, D.C., Montana, Hawaii, you know, all the various states where it's legal, they're practicing this, this really terrible practice of killing patients, but they're doing it legally. And then the AMA is in a position where they say this is a bad thing. And so two years ago, they decided to convene a subgroup effectively to decide whether they should go neutral on this or stay opposed to physician-assisted suicide. So this is something that I've had the privilege of being involved with uh, at least partially on a state level, where Indiana a few years ago had a resolution come up to our Indiana Medical Society. And thank goodness, with the help of a lot of, lot of physicians from the Catholic Medical Dental Association, a lot of the CMA physicians, we were able in Indiana not only to say we, we don't want to be in favor of it, but we've made a new resolution to be opposed. However, on the national level, the subgroup it's called the Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs, had a two-year period of studying the issue. I've written to them a number of times, and I know many other physicians have because we've all been concerned and watching for this. Just a few weeks ago, they released their official statement after two years of study that said they think we should continue to be opposed to physician-assisted suicide. And I'm curious what their rationale was, because this is a group that rarely, if ever, um, alludes to religious beliefs. Yes, it, it wasn't religious. It was more practical. And that's one of the things that, that I've noticed is even in the assisted suicide discussions, a lot of people are against it, you know, who may be atheists, uh, which really makes sense to me. If you only got one shot, there's no afterlife, uh, you don't want to go out like that. So the, it was not a religious argument primarily, but it was a practical one where there's several, several things to consider, a cost control problem. We know about 25% of Medicare dollars are spent in the last six months of life. It would be a huge conflict of interest. And one of the reasons insurance companies like assisted suicide is because it can allow them to save money. Um, it also, as, as we would know, it changes the role of a physician from someone who is always trying to help, uh, help heal, really, into a decision maker at what point we shouldn't heal anymore and we should actively try and kill the patient. So that, that's a change. But then again, it's not a change for part of physicians because OBGYN doctors have been doing that for decades, well, some of them. 
That's that's correct. I mean, and and so in that regard, I think there was a lot of overlap with the abortion argument. But they they did go through and they said, really, the way the code reads, the American Medical Association Code of Ethics says that we need to always do what's in the patient's best interest. We always have to help them. And it does say that we are opposed to assisted suicide. And so their statement was that we should not change the code at all, uh, which I, I like. I think that's a good thing. It's obviously... Uh, a blow to people who want assisted suicide, but that was not the only thing they said. The The second thing they said, actually, was that, you know, there's a lot of euphemisms for the practice. Sure. Physician aid in dying, death with dignity. I mean, that sounds nice. Who can be opposed to that? But weren't you the one who said some judges on the court in New York saw through that? Even the liberal judges in New York unanimously, the Supreme Court of New York said, this is really all the same thing, guys. You can't call it this stuff. <laughs> and so this this subgroup of the AMA took that question up as well, and they said, how should we refer to this? And they went through what each of the terms is supposed to mean, and they said, honestly, we've got to call it assisted suicide, whether people like it or not, because that's really what you're doing. And if you say death with dignity, that could mean assisted suicide, which it does, or it could mean even hospice or palliative care. I sure. mean, it's it's intentionally a euphemism to cloud the understanding of people who are receiving it or being terminated. And so I was very happy for that, you know, ray of, of common sense to come out of this subcommittee. So the the battle is really not over yet. However, this is a major stride because frequently in professional organizations, when you have a subcommittee meet, they come up with a recommendation, a lot of times that will get passed in what we call a consent agenda, where oh, sure. at, at the time of the meeting, everything that the subcommittees, they'll pull out a few things to talk about, and they'll talk about this to some extent, but the, the committee who wanted to study this they said we should stay opposed. And so the big showdown is actually going to happen in Chicago. So I'd, I'd ask our listeners to keep that in their prayers. And I know many physicians are going to be writing in, calling in, going to Chicago to testify on this on this issue. And hopefully, if we can maintain our opposition to assisted suicide, as we should, this will help thwart the, the progress of that movement and really keep doctors in the role of healers rather than executioners. Right on, Andrew. So preach, it's a preaching to the choir on this side of the table. Major advantage. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a yes. great piece of news, but it's a very serious one. So I was happy to see that. So keep praying and working. If you just joined us, you're listening to Doctor Doctor on Redeemer Radio as we now move from medical news of the day to Andrew's preventive health care tip of the day. Yes, I've got another wonderful tip today from our friends at the USPSTF, United States Preventative Screening Task Force from May 2012. That was a good year. Um, <laughs> the recommendation today is re in regard to the elderly, uh, which we call, medi in medicine, folks over 65. I know some of them are quite youthful. Uh, it talks about physical therapy or exercise as recommended in order to prevent falls, especially related to community-dwelling adults, which we would consider folks at nursing homes. And so the question is, is what's the deal with falls? why the elderly and exercise and physical therapy, I guess, are, are the recommended treatments. So I thought folks would like to study this a little bit more, and so I have the top three things that people need to know about falls. Very good. The, the number one thing, you know, a question you might be asking yourself is, why do people fall? You know, we always hear about falls. If you have an experience with a, a loved one um, or yourself, you might say, well, how do people fall? There's really a lot of reasons, and they're more common in the elderly. Number one reason that's a passion of mine is medications. Yes. Polypharmacy. There are studies done that show that if a patient's on eight medicines, even if they're all great and they all have an individual purpose, there's a higher risk of death. And if you're on a ninth medicine, there's a higher risk of death and a tenth a higher risk yet, even if they all have a purpose. So if you're on too many medicines, uh, you definitely are at a higher risk of falls. And some of the really suspect medications are sleeping medicines, anxiety medicines, like people may have heard of Xanax or yes. Clonopin, as well as some psychotropics, which we use a lot of times for sleeping medicine. They all cause more falls. So medicines are number one. Uh, another thing that happens is even physical health problems like arthritis, a history of stroke or weakness, um, malnutrition, and even common things that affect most of us as we age, visual and hearing impairments. When you don't have, you know, so to say, all your senses about you, which is very common as we get older, it's harder to maintain your balance. And so these are very common things that lead to increased risk of falls. 
A, a second thing that I think people would like to know is that when people fall and fracture a hip, something that, that happens frequently yes. with a fall, there's actually a 50% chance of death within one year. It's a coin toss. If you fall and break your hip, it's a 50-50 shot that, unfortunately, you may die in the next year. And is it because the hip fracture says something else about their overall health or because the hip fracture itself leads to something that leads to death? You know, I'd say both and. Okay. I had a patient that I remember vividly in the ER. She came in, and she had fractured her hip dismounting from her bike after a 100-mile bike ride that day. Oh, my goodness. And so, obviously, great health, very weak bones. And so the the biggest thing, and I heard this statistic in medical school. I said, that doesn't make sense. They got it wrong. But in practice, unfortunately, we see this because when you break a hip, you're laid up. And then after that, you're subject to blood clots potentially, you have to go through rehab, you're on medications, and for folks who are previously healthy, they may not have been doing a lot of doctoring, and now you're thrust right into it. And so we do see a huge deterioration in health. So prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? An ounce of prevention? Yes. And so we want to prevent this. And and the best way to do that, in addition to the exercise, is adding in calcium and vitamin D. We've discussed this in a previous show. Calcium should be about 1,200 milligrams daily and vitamin D about 1,000 of D3 daily. If you do this and exercise, I would talk to your physician about the best way for you to exercise. It may be in a official capacity with a physical therapist having directed exercise or even doing something like more moderate walking at the YMCA. A, a good way to look at this, and physicians utilize these, are screening tools to identify how at risk a person is for falling. There's two tools that I'm familiar with, um, the Morse, M-O-R-S-E, screening tool, as well as the Hendrick 2, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-H-2, screening tool. And if you find that you're actually at high risk, you may want to talk to your physician about ways to prevent falls. So that is my preventative tip of the day. Thank you, Andrew. And before we move into the break, we have a medical trivia question of the day. And this was one that I heard recently that stumped me. So I'm sharing the wealth of stumpness with you. Medicine is becoming more and more reliant on numbers. We've talked about that on the show here. We've talked about the numbers of blood pressure, the number of body mass index, your cholesterol level, your fasting blood sugar, etc. Well, at this conference, it was actually Watson's mama. Okay, Watson is that IBM computer that beat Ken Jennings out on Jeopardy. Oh, wow. Well, so Watson's being used for a lot of things in healthcare now, too. So according to Watson, what two numbers will most accurately predict your life expectancy. And this is important because these numbers are incredibly objective and they're being used by different agencies who make decisions about you. What are these two numbers? Please keep your radio tuned to this station and come back when we come back with our guest, Dr. Alan Moy. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally on Redeemer Radio, a trustworthy source of medical information for Catholics and everybody else. Today we're going to interview Dr. Alan Moy about stem cells. Dr. Moy is a a pulmonologist and respiratory director at Mercy Hospital of Iowa City, but he's also co-founder and CEO of Cellular Engineering Technologies and the founder and scientific director of John Paul II Medical Research Institute in Iowa City in Coralville, Iowa. Welcome, Dr. Moy. Thank you. Hey, Great it, to be with you. Yeah, and we're happy to hear because this is a subject that comes up in the news a lot, and that of stem cells. So can you, at a very basic level, explain to our listeners what are stem cells and when did they, we first realize they existed? Well, the term stem cells actually has been around for over a century. It's it was first introduced by a German biologist back in 1868 when he referred to that terminology with a fertilized egg. Ah. Um, and so the terminology is actually not new. It's, it's only uh, received more popular attention over the, probably the last decade or so. But what a stem cell is, it, it has to have two fundamental characteristics. It has to have the ability to self-renew. That is, be able to create daughter cells of its of the parent. 
And the second property is that it has to, to have the ability to differentiate or convert into some other specialized type of cell. But there are different types of stem cells, and they have different capabilities. But in general, that is the definition of a stem cell. So they can make new versions of themselves, but they can also change into different types of cells with different specialties, just like a medical student can convert into different specialties. Yeah, except for the uh, spell doesn't much more quicker. <laughs> I like well that. played, Alan. So how did you, as a pulmonologist and critical care doctor, get interested in stem cells? So I, my background was I was on faculty um, at the University of Iowa, and I was involved in vascular biology and tissue engineering, and I always had an interest in how the, the lung could protect itself from uh, inflammation. And then and around 2005, um, my co-founder and I decided that we were going to leave academia and wanted to start a stem cell company uh, that would produce adult stem cells because at the time there wasn't a lot of commercial adult stem cells uh, available for researchers. And it approximately uh, a decade earlier, um, there was the, the embryonic stem cell, which was which became commercially available. So there was not a lot of commercial alternatives to the embryonic stem cell. So since you brought it up, for our audience, what is an adult stem cell and what is an embryonic stem cell? So an adult stem cell um, is um, it, it's a little bit confusing because it actually uh, begins with a stem cell that occurs at the moment of birth through adulthood. So even a, even um, a, a a newborn is not really an adult. Right. Uh, the stem cells uh, refer to that moment in time. So these are stem cells that can be derived from a variety of different postnatal tissue, like from cord, umbilical cord, or umbilical cord blood, or from placenta. And there are a number of stem cells from those types of tissue. And it can also uh, advance as far as an, when someone becomes an adult, uh, there are a number of stem cells from more commonly from uh, bone marrow uh, and from fat and muscle and a variety of different types of uh, tissues. Um, in contrast, an embryonic stem cell is a stem cell is derived from um, an early uh, embryo, so around about a week of time of age of that embryo, uh, there are a number of stem cells from that embryo, young embryo. And the difference between uh, embryonic stem cells or from adult stem cells is their diversity, their ability to how much they can grow up uh, and expand in uh, cell cultures and how well they can convert or differentiate into the variety of different types of cells. Whereas an embryonic stem cell, because it's going to, be, it's, it's going to become a fetus subsequently and then a, a neonate, uh, it has to have the ability to differentiate into every type of cell type. So that's, that's one of the reasons why so many people felt the embryonic stem cells would be better. Is that right? Yeah, so there was, um, well, you have to think about this within some type of historical context. So adult stem cells, the most common adult stem cells was from bone marrow transplantation, and that's been around for decades, since the uh, late 50s, and yes. subsequent cord, cord transplantation in the late 80s. And so those stem cells had limited ability to differentiate into a variety of different tissues. And so there was concern among the scientific community that we needed uh, different types of stem cells that could differentiate into uh, a more diverse uh, spectrum of specialized cells. And there, it was quite well known in the um, mouse literature that mouse embryonic stem cells could do that. And then subsequently uh, there was interest to see if this could be uh, conducted in humans, which was accomplished in the late 19, uh, 1990s. So that why, because of those limitations of these earlier adult stem cell 
uh, clinical trials or adult stem cell technologies, there was an interest to pursue uh, more uh, different types of stem cells that have greater diversity. So to be clear for our listeners, embryonic stem cells harvesting require the death of a human being, correct? Correct. Which, right. you, you, which, have to, you have to destroy an embryo to harvest those cells yes. in order to grow them up in a laboratory. So we believe that it could never ethically, morally uh, be done. And if you've just joined us, we're here on Dr. Doctor discussing stem cells with Dr. Alan Moy, uh, the director of the John Paul II Medical Research Institute in Iowa. So, Alan, let's go from there. We know embryonic stem cells are, are not something we want to use or should ever use. Let's look at what has been the fruit of the original use of stem cells, bone marrow transplants. What were some of the good that came from that, and what were some of the medical problems with those? So um, bone marrow transplantation was first introduced in the late 1950s in Seattle. Um, And obviously uh, patients who have... uh, blood disorders, leukemia, lymphoma, um, and some metabolic disorders, um, we have used bone marrow transplantation under those conditions. And so um, when a patient is subjected who has cancer and, uh, or a blood-borne cancer and needs a bone marrow transplant, they are receiving um, uh, radiation or um, chemotherapy to essentially wipe out the leukemia in their bone marrow, but that because that bone marrow now uh, has no longer the stem cells necessary to repopulate uh, those uh, that bone marrow, then you need a donor uh, of bone marrow to repopulate that uh, that um, treated um, uh, bone marrow from that recipient, and so that's essentially what a bone marrow transplantation is. Now, so that has been around uh, for decades, and now there are 20,000 bone marrow transplantations performed yearly in the United States. And so that has been uh, successful for those types of disorders. Now, there are some challenges with bone marrow transplantation, one of which is there are uh, certain uh, donor cells or immunological cells from the donor in that bone marrow that can attack the, um, the recipient's tissue. Right. And that's a condition called graft-versus-host disease. Which can be so fatal. can be very fatal uh, in, in approximately 20 per, uh, 20% of the cases. Um, there, um, there is a need to treat that condition and uh, with immunosuppressive drugs which whenever you are having to deal with a bone marrow transplantation, you're having to deal with immunosuppressive drugs to suppress that effect. And so patients are going to be uh, susceptible to infectious disorders and opportunistic infections. Right, because the immune system just isn't working anymore because you're making it not work well anymore. Exactly. Now, I have heard that patients have been treated with their own stem cells for some disorders. Can you explain how that works? So, um, so that, that, that refers to what's called autologous stem cells. Right. So there, there are some uh, conditions um, that where, say, a patient who might have multiple myeloma, uh, they may... Which is a blood cancer. Look- is a blood cancer, correct? And then they um, may require some chemotherapy, but then they, their stem cells from the bone marrow are harvested in advance, and they undergo a uh, autologous uh, cell bone marrow transplantation, and so they may get some uh, chemotherapy to treat their myeloma, and then um, they are receiving back their own bone marrow. Um, so that has been done. It's been around for some time. Um, there are some concerns about uh, using one's own stem cells. Um, there is also the phenomena of private cord blood banking, yes, uh, where a, a child is storing or a parent is storing their children's uh, newborn of their cord blood. 
for insurance purposes for future use. And there has been criticisms about that because there isn't a lot of uh, there isn't a lot of uh, or there isn't a high probability that that cord blood will ever be utilized by that child or uh, by a sibling of that child. And so there has been some criticism about doing uh, undergoing that type of procedure. Then there is um, some people are currently using bone marrow and adipose stem cells um, in a uh, autologous fashion for uh, a lot of arthritic diseases. So patients who have osteoarthritis or degenerative arthritis, um, they may opt rather than getting, say, a hip replacement or a total knee replacement, they might pursue having an injection of um, their own stem cells by taking tissue from their bone marrow or from some fat. And, there, and so there are companies that are in that space um, that provide that type of uh, cell therapy. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a, the FDA has kind of a, a, a very interesting uh, governing policy regarding that type of adult autologous cell therapy um, where there has to be some very specific conditions that uh, and processes that have to be um, conducted by the company in order to avoid FDA regulation. Ah. Now, that's a great, great point, Alan, because I've had patients in my practice come up uh, with questions about stem cell therapy for something that, you know, in my my training, I, I'm not familiar with uh, having rigorous testing, you know, e- even things to, to treat, you know, conditions like weight loss or fatigue. How, how can consumers judge the efficacy of this, especially as you point out, it's, it's not really regulated so much in, in the outcomes as in the, the processes? Well, I think um, this, is what, this is a problem in this field because we have a lot of stem cell tourism yes. in, in this field. And so the International Society of Stem Cell Research has come out and uh, advocated that patients should participate in stem cells under a clinical trial uh, research uh, operation. Uh, nevertheless, um, there are um, uh, clinics that are doing this for fee-for-service, and they're using procedures that, you know, are not well-documented, are not well-transparent. Um, and, and it is possible that this will become um, increasingly more common now that Texas has um, passed a law that allows patients to pursue um, these cell therapies to, and avoid the regulation by the FDA. And so that's going to be kind of uh, interesting how that's going to evolve. Alan, we need to take a break right now, but when we get back, we'll talk more about regulation and what patients should and should not trust regarding stem cells. This is Dr. Doctor. We'll be right back after the break. We're back with the second half of our interview on Dr. Doctor with Dr. Alan Moy, a pulmonary critical care specialist who also works in the area of stem cell research. You know, Alan, in talking about all of this stem cell, you know, really the the various facets of this issue, one of the things that is occurring to me, this is very complicated, are there some websites that are trustworthy we can send our listeners to to learn more? So uh, one of the one website um, that describes uh, stem cell biology and talks about the uh, good practice in uh, medical research and in clinical trials is the International Stem Cell Society of uh, the the International Society of Stem Cell Research. So that's that's called the ISSCR.org. Uh, they represent a group of scientists who are in this field and will talk about good practices. So that if these practices are not being followed by something a patient's considering, they should steer clear of that. 
Exactly. And is there a resource for, for the ethical aspects of this as well, where, where people could learn about the companies that may still be funding this or utilizing this technology? So there are a number of uh, organizations, nonprofits, that, and medical research foundations that support embryonic stem cell research in some fashion. And probably the best site, uh, the list of those organizations uh, was uh, prepared by the Michigan Right to Life uh, organization. So, so if you go to check that out, they will tell you what organizations um, are conducting, supporting embryonic stem cell research. We also have that on our website. We have a link to the Michigan Right to Life too, as well. And what's your website, Alan? It's uh, jp2mri.org. And is it the number two or two... Small cap. It's the number. It's the number two. JP two. MRI. MRI. So that's for Medical Research Institute. So six characters. JP two M as in medical. R is in research. I is in institute. Dot org. Excellent. Well, so this point uh, brings me to a quote that I found fascinating because I'd like you to parse out what's true and what's false. And as some background, I remember the day, a month before 9-11, when on August 9, 2001, President Bush stated that the uh, government would no longer fund embryonic stem cell research except for already existing stem cell lines that they had. And then, a little under eight years ago, President Obama lifted this ban on new embryonic stem cell research in March of 2009. Three weeks later, Dr. Oz, on his show, was talking to Michael J. Fox, who suffers from advanced Parkinson's disease, and Oprah Winfrey. And so I want to read to you a quote of what he said, and then tell our listeners what of this is true, what of this is naive, what of this is false. Dr. Oz says, I think, Oprah, the stem cell debate is dead. He said, the problem with embryonic stem cells is that embryonic stem cells come from embryos like all of us are made from embryos, and those cells can become any cell in the body. But it's very hard to control them, and so they can become cancer. He says how you can take a little bit of skin, get those cells, give them some you know, different soup, and then turn them into cells that make, say, dopamine in the brain or, or something else and cure disease like Parkinson's. He says, I think we are single-digit years away from making a big impact in the lives of Parkinson's disease and those with diabetes, heart disease, people who've had a lot of problems. Is he right that the stem cell debate is dead? And then is he right that we are getting close to making this clinically effective? So I think that statement is um, inaccurate. So I think that the stem cell, the embryonic stem cell, and the, the fetal uh, tissue debate is not dead uh, by any means. Uh, there is still a lot of amount, uh, still a lot of funded research in that area. Uh, there is um, pharmaceutical companies use those cell lines not just for cell therapy, but they use it in drug development. They use it for uh, testing uh, drug safety. Uh, so even though it may not be used in, say, as a stem cell therapy, it is used to evaluate some of the common drugs that ultimately uh, we are all taking as patients. So that's, that's not true. Uh, the second thing is, we, you know, we've seen all of the, uh, those videos of Planned Parenthood uh, trafficking in yes. fetal tissue, and yes. so that's certainly not dead. Now, what, what um, uh, Mr. Oz was probably referring to is what's called an induced pluripotent stem cell. So uh, an induced pluripotent stem cell was uh, first uh, discovered by a Japanese Nobel laureate back in 2007. And it's <clears throat> this induced pluripotent stem cell, or IPS cell, um, involves taking an adult cell uh, starting, for example, skin cell, and genetically reprogramming it with uh, a number of genes that are transforming that adult stem cell into a embryonic-like stem cell, which can do all the things that a embryonic stem cell can do. Um, and so that's probably what he was referring to. Uh, the problem was back at that at at the time that he made that quote, 
the way those iPS cells were created is that you use you had to use a virus to introduce those genes into an adult cell, and those genes, uh, some of those genes. Uh, involves cancer genes, and so what we call oncogenes. Right. And so when you use those oncogenes and use those viruses, it it does raise some safety issues um, clinically. And so what a number of uh, labs have been trying to do since 2007 is to make these iPS cells safer uh, by uh, eliminating the viruses in that process because by if you can do that, you you can reduce eliminate that infectious risk. Um, and the challenge has been uh, trying to eliminate those oncogenes and getting them out of the process. And so um, we were the first last year to publish um, a uh, some research where we were able to uh, eliminate the virus and those oncogenes. In, the, in that iPS cell reprogramming process. So that was a major milestone in making this iPS cell technology safer. And what kind so of would, reception has that work gotten? Have you had any interesting conversations because of developing this stem cell line? Uh, we're beginning to get interest around the globe now. Um, it actually uh, was tracked at, um, at the top uh, 97th percentile among the 9 million scientific publications that were published in uh, 2017. So it's, it's, it's had some, a lot of interest insofar that there, there is now methods to uh, try to make this uh, IPSL uh, safer for clinical trial. So I think uh, there's going to be uh, now opportunity to offer these types of technologies for patients and uh, reducing the risk of those types of types of stem cells. So what's your next step in your research? What are you going to try to do with these next? Well, our company and the Institute are um, forming a, a joint venture, and what we're going to do is to try to expand um, our stem cell technology in adult stem cell and in IPS cell. And also, we have uh, developed uh, some what we call uh, bioprocessing technology to uh, be able to get these stem cells to produce biologics. And so biologics are protein drugs that are often used in, um, in hospitals uh, for a variety of different conditions. So anything that is involved with an antibody or a monoclonal antibody is using a, um, is using a cell line to produce that uh, antibody. And so there are a number of drugs that require cell lines. One of the problems of that process is that the, uh, we're currently using animal cells that, to produce these biologics, and there's some shortcomings. Yes. The other problem is that 20% of these uh, uh, human cell lines are, are coming from aborted fetal tissue. And so uh, we're applying some of this legendary, uh, leg uh, <coughs> this legacy uh, human adult stem cell work that we have done to create uh, biologics from those human adult stem cells. And that offers two opportunities. One, now we have fully human biologics uh, that compete with uh, those that are, will be in the future derived from aborted fetal tissue. And the, and the other is now we can make these stem cells even more potent and make them uh, provide regenerative medicine capabilities and properties and also allow them to be cargoes to release these biologics. So basically provides two-for-one um, uh, therapeutic modality. Man, that is, that's amazing because that's where the good ethical foundation of not using the embryonic cells and really good medicine, it's coming together to give really groundbreaking results. I know that's, that's a 
testament to your work as evidenced also by that research study that's garnered so much attention. Have you gotten a different reception because of the ethical beliefs of your company and your work? Do people question you on that or they're just impressed by how how effective and successful it is? I I would say that um, the the biotechnology industry is uh, very secular. Um, and it has not been, uh, uh, it has done a lot to try to purge religion out of the field. And so you tend to get, or we've experienced a lot of, you know, uh, religious bias because of the, of the institute's name. And so what you have to do is we just have to work harder and, you know, raise the bar in order to get recognized, and and that's just, you know, unfortunately, the reality when you are uh, trying to do something that has a a religious stamp on it, or an ethical stamp on it, or pro-life stamp on it, um, you have to basically face um, a world where um, often um, the Catholic Church is not welcome. Well, Alan, I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing and congratulate you on your success. I wonder, as as we're wrapping up the interview, is there anything that you would like us to, like our listeners to know about stem cells that we haven't had a chance to touch on? I think um, the the field of stem cell and the field of uh, biotechnology is going to be very important in everyone's life. I think it's going to be important for... Um, the future of Catholic hospitals for Catholic uh, healthcare providers and Catholic patients. And so it's going to be important that we have ethical alternatives um, to those types of therapies that will be derived from morally illicit cells. And so it's very important that we have um, a, a Catholic or pro-life um, based um, biotechnology uh, field that can counter what is occurring in a secular uh, field of biotechnology. Well, that's what C.S. Lewis called the, uh, what is it, Tom? Apologetics of secular competence. Secular competence. You're, you've got the ethical foundations. You're doing the right thing, but you're also really, really good at what you do. So, Alan, thank you so much for all your work, and thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you for having me. You're welcome, and we'll be right back with more Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Malali. And now it's that time of the show when we answer the vexing medical trivia question of the day. And today's vexed me when I first heard it. It vexed Andrew. It's a good question. Yeah, off air he tried to answer it and he was, maybe gets uh, one half out of two uh, correct. Uh, Anyway, the question is this. Medicine is becoming more and more reliant on numbers and we have discussed many of them on this show. But what two numbers will most accurately predict your life expectancy? And these two numbers are very objective. There's no waffle room in them. You either have these numbers as they are or you don't. And I'm going to give you a hint. One of them is a five-digit number, and one of them is a three-digit number. I'll, I'll give them a hint, too. I do not need to see you in the office to figure these out. Exactly. That's why people know these facts about you, and they're using them to make decisions about how you are treated. What are these two numbers? Your zip code and your credit score. Yes, I expected it to be something like BMI or fasting blood sugar. I mean, Andrew guessed BMI and income, which were, you know, very reasonable. At least he was thinking outside the medical box a little bit with income. You'd you'd think that there's got to be something related to all the medical stuff that we do to guess life expectancy, but the computers have figured it out in a simpler way, a way that they can they can make it 
you know, judgments based on us without ever meeting us. You know, there's uh, an article that said that your zip code is more useful than your genetic code for figuring out how much you would live. In fact, there are huge geographic disparities in life expectancy in our nation. And in fact, life expectancy can vary up to 20 years by zip code. And, and why is this? Zip codes often show how we differ both by race, by ethnic groups, by socioeconomic factors like income, education, and employment status. And uh, for instance, in New Orleans, the average life expectancy for babies born to mothers in different neighborhoods can vary by as much as 25 years. That's different neighborhoods within a single city that have different zip codes. And then babies in Maryland's Montgomery County, which I used to drive through when I was stationed uh, at an Army base north of D.C., in that county, those babies can expect to live six to seven years longer than those in the immediate next-door county of Washington, D.C., just a few subway stops away. So what do zip codes determine? Well, they can determine your access to healthy food, how safe your neighborhoods are, even the quality of air you breathe and water you drink, and what health care is available. So all that is kind of summed up in your zip code. That's incredible to me that, you know, we can identify this, but still some of these things are so elusive to change, you know? <clears throat> yes, how do you treat a zip code? That's right. You gotta, that'd be a hard thing to do. I guess you could give a, per, a patient a prescription to move, but it's just not that easy. Well, the other half of this is your credit score. There is a, an article called Credit Scores, Cardiovascular Disease Risk, and Human Capital. And this was a study of over 1,000 uh, patients in New Zealand. But in New Zealand, they cannot escape credit scores. They have a three-digit credit score there, too. And what they showed is that as your credit score increased, that means better credit, your heart age decreased. That is, you had the heart of a younger person than your true age. That's incredible because it's something that, you know, you should be able to change if you're making good financial decisions, right? And, and here are the things that they think it's tied to, or they've shown that a, a good portion of it's tied to is what they term as human capital. That is, the highest level of education attained, your cognitive, cognitive ability, which is your ability to think, to rationalize, to make decisions, uh, to reason out a problem. And the third thing is your self-control. That's why income is not directly related. I know a lot of people with high incomes who have really poor self-control and people with low incomes who have really great self-control. So it's not really related to your income because you can have a great credit score or a lousy credit score with a high income or with a low income. Credit score is really pretty clever in teasing those things out because at first I've, I've seen data related to income, but this is one step further because it takes into account your behavior, not just if you got lucky, won the lottery, or you were you know, given more opportunities. This is what you've done. Right. And behavior influences how we eat, how we exercise. So somebody with good self-control is more likely to have good self-control, not only with money, but with food and with exercise, and with sleep, and with risk-taking behavior. Those computers are pretty smart. Yes, and so are the people using them. There's probably some actuary somewhere who determined this for us, <laughs> or an actuary who programmed Watson. Well, uh, we're moving on to a question from our listener in the last three minutes or so of our, so of our show. We have a question that says, how should patients prepare for their doctor's appointments? Oh, that's a that's a good question because I think a lot of times if if you're well prepared for a visit, you're going to be able to get the most out of it. And you recommend what, Andrew? You know, there's there's a couple of things, and I mean, it it probably depends on the office visit, the specialty, and family medicine. We got to do a little bit of everything. I always tell folks as best you can bring all your medicines with you if you're on medicines. Bring a clear list of goals if you have things that you want to get figured out so we can be sure to guess, you know, to answer everything and we're not guessing at the end. Yes. Um, and then you had a couple of tips as well, Tom, didn't you? Well, I do. I like them having questions written down. That is so important. And then I will ask for the list of questions because I can gauge how much time we have. Because if a patient is just stringing them out one at a time, 
they might run out of time. Whereas if I see the questions, I can group them, I can organize them for them. So it's not because I want to take control. I do, but it's so that the patient can get everything done in the time we have allotted to them. I think that's a great point because a lot of times I feel like I can answer pretty much most of their questions, but if, if they're surprises, we're going to misallocate our time because, unfortunately, the way the, the medical system is set up, we have limited time in the appointments. And don't wait till we're standing up to leave the room to ask that most important question. Please ask the most important question you got to lead with the important one. <laughs> please, please, please do that. In fact, one of the biggest pet peeves among physicians is the, oh, by the way, uh, Please don't do that. We want to know why you're there, what's important. I just had a patient here this week, and it took me like four or five minutes to figure out what he was really asking once I was able to nail it down. So you're here today because you're concerned about this. And he nodded his head. Thank you. Now I can take care of you. Uh, and also this questioner asked, how do doctors feel about patients taking notes? Ooh, that's a good question. I think it's great. The more notes, the better. I usually, you know, I find myself in visits frequently taking notes for patients, and then I try and give them to them because there, there was a study done that showed on, on average patients remember about 10% of what was discussed in a visit. Right, and if you write it down, you're going to remember a lot more. And then they ask, you know, what about recording a visit? Ah, you know, that's a good question, and that that is one that I think would be wise to get some legal advice on because, you know, the, the thing is, is that if you take anything out of context, you could probably even find parts of this show. If you take out of context, it doesn't make sense. And so things have to be taken in, into context. So I think it's not a terrible idea, but I would definitely ask your doctor first because yes, it, from, yes. from a physician's point of view, I, I could be tempted to see that as, you know, a lack of trust. Uh, where you're trying to maybe catch the doctor saying something that's not exactly right. And frequently we're working with partial information. So I'm not sure if recording's the best way, but I would definitely encourage folks to take notes, and I would happily help. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, where we... Physicians of the Catholic Medical Association are trying to uphold the Catholic faith and the science of practice of medicine. Signing off, this is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. Please remember that your medical decisions today can have profound consequences tomorrow, so please choose wisely and choose Catholic.